This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to a new season of In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a man who has entertained Australia for over 30 years. He's danced on film in Strictly Ballroom, stepped into stilettos for the Rocky Horror Picture Show and donned top hat and whip for a tightrope walking P.T. Barnum. And it feels like he's done everything in between, including West Side Story, Singing in the Rain, The Pirates of Penzance, Cabaret, Anything Goes, the list goes on. And that's before we start talking about his role as a judge in Dancing with the Stars. But perhaps his most well-known performance has been to bring entertainer Peter Allen back to life in the original Australian production of The Boy From Oz. His name is, of course, Todd McKenney, and I'd like to welcome him to be in conversation with me today. Todd McKenney, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me in. Now, when I first got in touch with an interview earlier in the year, you were actually appearing in Shrek oh. uh, up, in, up in Brisbane. That's quite a contrast to the music of Peter Allen. <laughs> it is. Um, it is. I played the, uh, the evil dictator Lord Farquaad, <laughs> who uh, wanted to marry the princess and who, in the stage show and in the, you know, the animated you know, movies that everybody knows, is only four foot tall. So during oh, Shrek, yes. the stage show, I did the entire show on my knees Ooh. as a 55-year-old who'd just had a hip replacement. So you can imagine and how And probably well. about to have a pair of <laughs> knee replacements. <laughs> well, and back. Because the funny thing, well, the director, funnily enough, said to me, um, your knees are going to be okay because you're in these industrial knee pads. Uh-huh. She said, it's going to be your back that's going to give you was. the problem. And it was for a number of reasons. One, you're shimmying from one side of the stage to the next, doing a, a Broadway kick line on your knees, right? Yeah. But everybody that you deal with in the show isn't on their knees. And so I spend the whole show looking up, right, in this harness. And so I've got this harness on my back, which the knees or legs are attached to, which actually come out of my belly. That's where they're <laughs> attached because I'm on my knees, so they look like I'm standing up. And then I'm looking up, so I'm pulling up this apparatus. And by the end of the first week, I, I really wanted to rip up my contract <laughs> and walk away. But the character brings the house down. It's the funniest role I have ever played in my life. The audiences just loved to hate him so much <laughs> that I just took a big breath every night and went, it's worth it. But you didn't start with um, with your legs uh, strapped and walking around on your knees because you, you originally started in dance, right? That's I how you, you got into this business. Yes, mum's a dancing teacher. My mum yeah. was a dancing teacher for 45 years. My grandmother was a dancing teacher in Perth before that. My mm. grandmother and my grandfather met at a dance and they used to dance together. Mm. And in the old styles. In the old styles. I've got beautiful photos of them and him in a boater hat and <laughs> her in a nice flowing collots and, you know, just very fringe. And, um, yeah, so it's been in my family for forever. Is that why you wanted to become a dancer at first? Because that's what you were originally trained in, right? That's all I did until I moved out of Perth and came to Sydney in 1983 mm. for a musical. Uh, yes, I just wanted to be a dancer. That's that's all I wanted to be. But in Perth, there's not much scope for you to pursue a career mm. as a dancer in Perth, unless you're classical. And I'm no, I don't have any technique. Mm. I'm just a hack. Um, I'm jazz hands and spirit fingers and all that, and sequence. And so there wasn't much to do. So it was very early on I thought, well, if I'm going to be in showbiz, I need to get out of Perth. And so I did. And then that was as a dancer, and I got a dance role in an Andrew Lloyd Webber show called Song and Dance, which toured for a year, but I didn't have to sing. And so it was after that that nearly every single person around me, this new, you know, young 19-year-old, they said, you need to learn to sing. And I was terrible. 
God, I was terrible. Yeah, I was about to say, so you hadn't had any singing experience? No, nothing. And I was terrible. I was mm. tone deaf. It was really difficult for me, really difficult. And that was a surprise to me how hard it was to sing. And I was, te- I was bad. I've listened to recordings of those early days. <laughs> God, I was bad. But if I wanted longevity, you know, I had to learn. And yes. it was just great wisdom from the people around me that said, Toddy, learn to sing. But how did you learn to sing if you, from, from a standing start from zero? I just got jobs in choruses where I had to sing, but nobody really listened to me. So I was mm. just in the mix. You were hidden a bit. I was hidden a bit. Um, so I sang a lot in Pirates of Penzance, Camelot and all of that. But I was really in those shows as a dancer. A dancer who can sing. A dancer who can sing. Yeah. But then in, when I, in 1987, I did Cats, the musical Cats, and I got bored during it because I was the acrobatic cat called Tumble Brutus. And they put a notice on the notice board one day saying they were looking for a third, a third cover, a third understudy for the Rum Tum Tugger Pup, which is a rock and roll cat in Cats. And the best role in the show, really. And so to curb my boredom, I said, oh, I'll have a go. Mm. And a third understudies never, ever get on. It's never good. You're, you're a spare. You're just a spare, you know. So I didn't take it too seriously, but I went to the understudy rehearsals. You're a spare for the spare. You're a spare for the spare for the spare. And then I went out in between shows at the Madge in Melbourne, Her Majesty's in Melbourne, came home after, I came back to work after the matinee, and they said, you're on. I was like, what do you mean I'm on? They went, you're on for Tugger tonight. And so I had to learn to sing. So I that was the first time I'd ever sung in public, mm. apart from the rehearsals, and the musical director said to me that I finished the song before the band and at the end there was still a few bars of music because I just got in there and sang as fast as I could. And he said to me, we need to rehearse tomorrow. You need to sing with the band. <laughs> but what about the tone and the notes and all the rest of it? No, I don't tempo, know. Tempo, shmempo. But, yeah, you know. no, I was in a big costume and, um, you know, just giving it personality. But then after that I did learn, I did learn to sing. The Boy From Oz, of course, just changed my life in that regard. Now I sing more than I do anything else and exactly. I love it. But it wasn't just The Boy From Oz. Um, you were already an established singer before that. Otherwise you wouldn't have gotten that role? I w- Yes, that's true. But they did put me into intensive uh, vocal training. So Ben Gannon, who was the producer of The Boy From Oz when I got the role, did take me off the stage and out of anybody's eye for six months and I just immersed myself in Peter Allen with his experts Mm. uh, and singing and all and singing in that style and I I was doing Crazy View a Gershwin musical when I got the boy from Oz so I was still I was actually singing at some point it it kicked in Mm. um, but it was the boy from Oz that really cemented everything well the fact that you can um, be a a, a full-on singer now having had a not being a singer at all in your youth gives us all hope. Well, and funnily <laughs> enough, I used to, when I, because I come from a you know, razzmatazz yeah. you know, jazz dancing background, it was always the up-tempo songs. I would always lead mm. to up-tempo songs and you know, the Rios and the, that sort of stuff, disco stuff and all, just the fast stuff. But, it, it, you know, it, for me now, it's the value and the uh, emotion in the ballads that I sing. And I'm still a, a, a hack, but I love singing ballads. I love the emotion of ballads and... That's been a real surprise to me, actually. Mm. Well, we have to have a, our first selection of music, which is definitely in the up-tempo category and not something that you might expect uh, Todd McKenney to choose because it's from the world of opera. Todd, what have you chosen and <gasps> oh. why have you chosen it? So this is Emma Matthews, Queen of the Night. It changed my life. I was doing the musical Annie with Anthony Wallow and Nancy Hayes and Alan Jones, of all people, and I got my agent called me and said, Opera Australia want you to do Orpheus in the Underworld. And I thought instantly, as I would, that they wanted me to choreograph it. 
And so I said, oh, how, when is it? And I'll, I'll have a look at it and all of that. And then I decided not not to go ahead with it because I hadn't um, – I thought it needed more classical dancing. So I said, look, no, it needs classical dancing. I'm not going to do it. And they said, what are you talking about dancing? They want you to be in it. And I said – I laughed, picked myself up off the floor. And went, in it as what? And I was playing Pluto. And they said, they want you to be in it. And so I – took a deep breath and went into Nancy Hayes' room and said, Nancy, Opera Australia have offered me office in the underworld at the Opera House. She said, do it, darling, do it. Get out of your comfort zone and just do it. And then I went in to talk to Anthony and said, Anthony, Opera Australia have asked me. And he said, oh, they look down on commercial artists, the company, they can. He said, I think you should think twice about it. You know, you're not in that world. And so I had the both I had mm. the things to weigh up, both both opinions were valid. Anyway, I listened to Nancy in the end and I did it. And I walked into the rehearsal room the first day and I apologised for being there in front of the cast. I said, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Any tips, just throw them my way. Not only were the opera company welcoming of me, they have remained some of my dearest friends. I had the time of my life. And I didn't realise how opera works. So when we, we rehearsed for four weeks with just the principal cast in the rehearsal room and they kept saying... When the chorus come in, we've only got them for four hours, we'll place them in their numbers and uh, then they'll leave. And I thought, how does that work? Because, of course, they're doing four and five other operas during the week and mm. rehearsing during the day. Their workload is, is absolutely mammoth. So, But I didn't understand how that worked. Anyway, we, we got our show together and they said it was all the, the chorus are coming in today, the chorus are coming in today. And I stood there. The chorus came behind me, like 45 or more people, and they fired up. I have never felt emotion like it. My rib cage was shaking, reverberating. With them standing behind me, this wall of sound. And I got emotional. I started to tear up and I went, oh my gosh, that's. And from that moment on, I just fell in love with opera. I thought I would, I thought that being a, you know, musical theatre person, I would. I wasn't supposed to like opera, but mm. not only do I like it, I love it. And I like the big Wagners. I like the big chorus operas. That's what I love the most. Anyway, while we were there, I got introduced to Emma Matthews, who's a great chick, apart from anything else. She's funny and she's really – and I hadn't ever heard her sing. I didn't know really what her talent was. Anyway, I got introduced to her in the makeup room one day and we chatted and, you know, she's a great sense of humour. And then I went and watched her and she came out and she sang Queen of the Night – the girl I'd just seen in the makeup chair, I just could not believe that somebody has an instrument like that. And so I think that's one of my, uh, the pinnacles of my opera loving experience is hearing her sing this live.
der helle Rache kocht in meinem Herzen. Well, the Queen of the Night Aria from Mozart's Magic Flute. That wonderful voice there was Emma Matthews, and that was the choice of my guest in conversation today. The entertainer, singer, dancer, everything. Todd McKenney. So, Todd, we have to go back to The Boy from Oz and hear a bit more about that. Now, did you already have a penchant for the music of Peter Allen, or um, was it something you had to grow into? No, it's the biggest cliche in the business. But when I was 13, Peter Allen came to Perth and worked at the Perth Concert Hall. And I was a young kid growing up in a dancing school environment, and one of the mothers of one of the kids I danced with ran the box office at the Concert Hall in Perth and said to Mum, I've got some spare tickets for a show, the Peter Allen show tonight. Do you want to come? And Mum said, who is he? And and this lady, Sandy Haldupas, her name was, Sandy said, he's the guy that sings Rio, you know, where my baby? And Mum went, oh, yeah, and I happened to be standing in the studio, and Mum said, do you want to come? So I didn't know a one-man show was even a genre, let alone what it would feel like. Anyway, I sat there in about the third row from the front. The lights went down, and I just, I had no idea what I was about to witness, and out he bounded, and he was on stage for two and a half, three hours. He wow. did as a one-man show. It's a one-man show. He sang Fly Away, a song called Fly Away, doing sit-ups on the grand piano, right, as he was singing it. And he, yeah. was talk- it was, he was talking about how there's this whole fitness regime going on in L.A. at the moment. So he got up in the middle of a ballad and saying, oh, I might fly away doing crunches. Oh, I might fly away. And I remember loving his chat and he was very funny and his flamboyance and just the way that everybody was engaged. And, again, he had the audience laughing and right into his stories. And what I took away from that was a feeling of, I wonder what that would feel like to be in that position, to stand there and have the audience just loving you like that. And um, so I started following his his career mm. and then I moved to... Sydney to Bondi actually in 1988 and in 1989 uh, my dogs were playing on Bondi Beach with two other little white dogs and this lady walked up and said introduced herself her name was Lynn Smith and she turned out to be Peter Allen's sister so we became friends so our dogs used to play in the afternoon so Lynn and I became mates and then I said, oh, I love your brother's work and, you know, I'm just a big fan. And so I used to just go and see him performing live and I, uh, and her and I are still friends to this day and they always thank me for keeping his legacy alive. And I've hung my career on Peter Allen. Yeah. It's just been the most important union I've ever had and it just was always very comfortable because of the family's endorsement. And So I was very familiar with Peter. Mm. I was very familiar. His, his style of live show um, really appealed to me. Mm. And then when I got to research him, the family gave me videos of him in private and so I had all of this wealth of information. But I had, I had to look for the question of what made Peter Allen um, so successful in, at, in that era to a very middle Australian audience. And uh, my um, answer, I think, came in his, was his chat, like his, his, his connection to the audience. He made the audience feel like he was telling them something he's never told anybody else before. So just between us, I'm going to tell you this. And you could feel the audience sit forward in their seats. And studying that... And that's now what I do during my shows, is that the chat in my shows is as important to me as the music. 
and that was the same in his show. Mm. When you're talking about the sort of the appealing to the middle Australia audience, are you also to some extent referring to the fact that he's sort of an, an obviously flamboyantly gay man in an era where such things were not quite as comfortable as they are now? Oh, totally. Yes. I mean, how he got away with it. But the, re- the way he got away with it, he was just himself on stage. He was a man who was born to be doing exactly that job. Uh, and he also wrote beautiful songs which Australians related to. His music is incredible and simple, a lot of it. But, you know, he just skated on the thin ice. You know, mm. he, he wouldn't have got away with it if he'd, if he'd uh, been very blatant about it and talked about gay, you know, relations or whatever. But yeah. he never did. He's he, One of his things in his very early shows, he said, um, you know, people always ask me, am I or aren't I? You know, am I? And he says, and I tell him, yes, I am Australian. Uh, yes, that's the line from The Boy From Oz. It, yes. well, well, it's his line. Yeah. Like, it's what he used to do in his shows. Yeah. And because that just, he was a bit naughty, you know, yeah. and he got away Everyone with it. Everyone knew what he was talking about. They knew what yeah. he was talking about, yeah. yeah. His first job was in a place called, in a, in a, a menswear shop in Lismore called Man's Land. And he, has, he does a five-minute monologue on that <laughs> without ever saying, you know, can you can imagine how happy I was in Man's <laughs> Land. You know, all of that. So that's how he got away with it. So in your study of him to inhabit the character for the purposes of the stage show versus, say, inhabiting him for the purposes of singing the music of Peter Allen. Is there a difference between the two? Uh, well, yes. My shows aren't uh, aren't scripted. They're structured but not scripted. So uh, my shows uh, are never the same twice. The music is often but not, not the chat. And I think we're similar anyway. I mean, he used to make me laugh. I get his sense of humour. He taught me posthumously my craft and... So I did learn how to talk to an audience during The Boy From Oz because of watching and studying Peter Allen. Mm. So I think there is definitely a crossover. Um, I think the most important thing is that you treat the audience with respect and you don't talk down to them. You don't... And now I would like to sing for you. <laughs> when my baby smiles at me, I go to Rio. You know, I just never would do that. I'll go... Uh, you know, if, like, I introduce... I still call Australia home as the Qantas commercial. You know, it's the, <laughs> now I'm going to sing for you the Qantas commercial. <laughs> you know, so it's that um, it, it's it's that technique of his, I think, which uh, which I think is very similar. To but me. I suppose it's not just that sort of technique I'm talking about. I, I'm more referring to the way you might sing the song in terms of the voice you might do, or the or the. I mean, it, it, there is a difference, isn't there, between playing him and singing his songs, if I can put it that way. Yes. Yes, there is. There is. Um, He had a uh, much bigger range than me, and his voice sits a lot higher. But in The Boy From Oz, Gail Edwards, who directed it, in her wisdom, never wanted me to impersonate Peter Allen. So I never impersonated... Because I started to do that at the beginning of rehearsals, and she pulled me up straight away. She said, Todd, it's not working for you. You're giving me a half-baked impersonation of a gay guy. Like a Peter Allen, you know, and mm. she said, "I don't want that. What I want is the essence of what he has and what you both have, which is the want and the drive and the need to be on stage. That's what I want. But I want you to find a few hooks that reek of Peter Allen, mm. and some of them are in the eyes, some of them in the way he moves his head, and he looks, he gets this glassy-eyed stare to, into the middle distance and stuff like that. Now that's ingrained in me from the rehearsal process and playing the show over a thousand times. So when I am in my one-man shows singing his songs, often I will f- find myself falling into that. And so there, there's legacies of studying him. So yeah, it does cross over. But then there's other times where I try and make the songs my own. Mm. So there's a song called Not the Boy Next Door, which is a 70s disco kind of 
bal- um, um, up-tempo, well, we've turned it into a shuffle. So it's, for us, it's almost like the way um, Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel. Mm. We do it. We sort of sit back on it. So we never never play around with his classics. We'd never, I would never touch Rio. I would never touch Australia Home. I would never touch Tenderfield Sadler, Honestly Love You, Don't Cry Out Loud. They, we, just, we pay homage to them in their purest Peter Allen form. But with these other lesser-known ones... We sort of put our own kind of stamp on them or we'll turn them into a Latin feel and mm. keeps them fresh. Mm. Okay. So after the show's an incredible success here and you, as you said, a thousand shows or whatever it was, was there ever an opportunity to take it to Broadway or was that, did, was that opportunity never really a thing? No, that opportunity was a very real thing. A live one. Yeah, so... Um, ben Gannon, the producer, and Robert Fox um, came to me and said, we want you to take it to Broadway. So a number of different people came to the theatre to watch the show. Uh, they uh, tried to get a theatre in New York for it, to put it in. And out, But the big question was whether Actors' Equity in America would let me oh. in. But they did. So uh, this lady, they'd been going back and forwards having meetings about whether they'd let this Aussie guy in to do it. Um, and... The final answer was about to be a no, but then this lady who had come to Sydney to see the show, was who was on holidays and not involved in these discussions at the equity meetings, suddenly turned up and was back from holidays and was at this last meeting. She said, no, 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 wait, let him in. I've just, I've seen him, let him in. And so I got the stamp and I was able to work on Broadway for... Uh, a year with the show and then on the road on the tour if they toured it as long as I was employed and by the producers in that role I was able to go in but then the second part of that story is that um, there's a whole lot of uh, theatres with a million different shows waiting to get into them in Broadway. Broadway theatres are owned by only a handful of owners. Uh, The Nederlanders, the Gershwins, all all that. So to get a show on, into a theatre on Broadway, you have to more or less sell it to the theatre owners and say, this is what we've got. And no, none of them wanted an unknown guy in the lead role, the boy from Oz. And so Ben Gannon um, said, you know, I'm really sorry, but I, I can't, you know. And, then, and actually it was Hugh's manage, Hugh Jackman's management that called me and said, Hugh's been asked to go in and have a meeting about doing the boy from Oz. That's how, actually how I found out. And they said, he doesn't want to tread on your toes. So if you say, don't go, you know, he won't go to the meeting. And I was like, I've never, I would never say that in a million years. Um, and I totally get it. You know, that's what Ben had to do. That's what Ben had to do. And luckily it went to Hugh, who I just admire so much. And Deborah Lee, his wife, has been friends of mine for years. And so I was really, really glad that it went to um, went to somebody like that. And I... I run my own race and, you know, I've had a great career. I have a great career and I look at Hugh's success and, you know, with admiration and the media wanted me to hate it, you know, wanted me to hate that and they really ran with that and and stupidly I kind of played into that at the beginning but... Thinking that was the role you needed to play? Yes, and I wish I hadn't. It's been a real regret of mine over the years because I have absolutely no problem with Hugh. Mm. I love Hugh. But that's out there now and that was just... Baby Todd, inexperienced Baby Todd, who went, yeah, the bastard, you know, you know <laughs> how dare he take my job? And, and I, I would say throwaway lines in the media like, oh, well, it would have been nice if he gave me a couple of his movies while he stole my show. You know, things we're like... We're supposed to be funny. We're yeah. just supposed to be funny. But in print, but it's funny. not so much, yeah. In print, not at all. Mm. So in print, it just looked bitchy and I looked angry. And that just went out there. So even to this day, and how many years ago is that, I'm, I still have to kind of, you know, face that, but... 
I've come out now and just said, I'm sorry, I handled that really bad. <laughs> well, that's very good for you. I, I have to say, I've seen both of your, both performances and um, it's it's different. I mean, different. It's, it's a, he's completely different. He's good. He's yeah. just completely different and that's yeah. that's good. It's not like they found some, tried to find someone who was almost the same as you without not being. Without no, being and you. also yeah. the, the great thing is that Peter Allen was a star, hmm. right? So what they got with me, they, they, uh, they didn't – nobody knew me. I mean, I'd done lead roles and things, but I, would, I was in the tiny – I wasn't in the main, you know, arena. And So with me, people could could think I was Peter Allen because they didn't really know what Peter Allen was, especially the under, younger audience. They didn't really know me. So I turned into Peter Allen for them, even though I was really nothing like him. And then, But what you get with Hugh and what he adds to it is stardom. Peter Allen was a star, could feel Radio City Music Hall. Hugh Jackman's a star, could feel Radio City Music Hall. So – you, you get something that works on both both levels. Well, a change of pace now, um, and we've got some more music. You've chosen a track from Della Reese. Tell, oh, us, tell us about this one. I love Della Reese. So I do this in my in my show. Sometimes we throw it in. Um, this has come on in my house. The thing I love about Della Reese is the way she chews her words. Come on in my house, my house. I'm going to give you candy. <laughs> it's just that. It's just being brave enough to just accentuate what you've got. I mean, she doesn't talk like that, but the way she sings, she chews the words up and she, she, she savours every, every syllable and that's what I love. Come on in my house, my house, come on. Come on in my house, my house, come on. I'm gonna give you cakes and dates and the grapes and the cakes. Hey, come on in my house, my house, come on. Come on in my house, my house, come on. Come on in my house, my house. I'm gonna give you candy. Come on in my house, my house. I'm gonna give you everything. I'm gonna give you a Christmas tree Come on to my house, my house I'm gonna give you a marriage ring And a pomegranate too, hey Come on to my house, my house, come on Come on to my house, my house, come on Come on to my house, my house I'm gonna give you a peach and a pear And I dig your hair, hey Come on to my house Come on, come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house. I'm gonna give you Easter egg. Come on to my house, my house. Delarice. Chewing the words in a good way, though, to come on at my house. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Todd McKenney. Well, Todd, we've talked about opera, we've talked about dancing, we've talked about musical theatre, but eventually in your career you did a straight play. Oh, I did. Well, a gay, I played a gay six character. Dance in lessons in, <laughs> well, six dance lessons in six weeks with, yes. uh, with Nancy Hayes. Tell me about that experience. Uh, the ensemble. 
Okay, Nancy Nancy Hayes is one of my dearest friends. I actually have two greyhounds at home, and one of my greyhounds is called Nancy Hayes the Greyhound. So, How does she feel about that? No, I rang Nancy first and asked her. I said, do you mind if I name my new dog after you? Because Nancy <laughs> loved my last greyhound who passed away. And I said, can I name my new dog after you? And she said, this is the day I got it. And um, she said, oh, she'll be a needy little thing. I mean, every now and again, Nancy will st- still send me a text message and say, have you fed me yet? Have you fed me today? Which is gorgeous. Um, uh, so yes, Nancy is, is a dear friend of mine, and we. This play was written by a man called Richard Alfieri about a stuck-up ex-Baptist minister's wife in Florida, uh, and this uh, young, f- smart-mouthed ex-failed Broadway chorus dancer called Michael Manetti from New York who worked for a company called Six Dance Lessons in Six Weeks. So he he would hire himself out to go and teach little old biddies a dance in their land room each week for six weeks. And so Nancy's character hires this guy because she used to love to dance and she pretends her husband is still alive. So when I turn up to the the first lesson, um, her character, who's just as smart-mouthed as him, by the way, Pretends that her husband will be back any minute, and my character sort of says he's not a lot. You know, he she he gets he gets the joke, and these two have this fiery, cantankerous relationship. And after each scene, they finish the scene with the dance. So if the scene's a tender scene that they end up talking about, which is later in the play, you'll do we'll do a rumba. That'll be a rumba at the end. We start off with doing like a jitterbug jivey thing, with her dancing around her lounge room. She moves all the furniture back and. And they end up becoming lifelong friends and she dies in his arms in mm. the end. So they go from this fiery, hideous relationship to just being the most tender love story between two complete strangers from different worlds. Um, it was one of the sweetest moments of my life watching Nancy Hayes develop her character. And I'd never done a straight play. Mm. Um, Sandra Bates, who's the, who's the artistic director of Ensemble, who asked us to do it, said it was the first time anywhere in the world where they'd have actual dancers to play the roles and that the dancing and the other productions used to suffer, whereas for us it was the cherry Mm. on the top of this cake. And Richard Alfieri, the the writer, came out from New York to see the show and he said that's the first time I've ever seen it imagined, how I imagined it, because it's always we get to the dancing, it always gets a bit clunky, whereas, of course, Nancy and I, that was our forte. But the the most important thing for me is that that show taught me to act and I take it into every musical I do now, no matter how silly the role, even in Shrek, um, is finding the reality in characters. Whereas before that, I would be in rehearsals of musical theatre and just be heading to the sweet spot, which was the song and dance. Mm. And so that the was always, the jazz hands in the sequence. Basically. The jazz hands in the sequence. That was always my focus. But when you haven't got that, you've got to find something else. And I was watching Nancy put her character together over the first three weeks of our rehearsals and I was lagging way behind. She was eating me for breakfast. I was doing, you know, waka, 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 you know, <laughs> sort of like pantomime acting and I knew I was. Actually to the point where Sandra Bates said to me one day, Todd, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. <laughs> and I was like, because she gives it to you both, Barrel Sandra, I love it, absolute bits. She said, Todd, when you act, in inverted commas, you're awful. Don't act. 
and I didn't know how to take it. I was, but she's absolutely right. Like I was, I was just putting layers on top of things that just didn't need layers. So all the emphasis was on the wrong syllables, which wasn't natural. It was just like, <laughs> oh my god! And it taught me to act. And yeah. I, and then then what happened is I'd find the sweet spot in a scene, and you can you hear a silence in a room full of people. When you hear a room full of people absolutely silent. It's a really powerful feeling. And when you know they're silent because they're hanging on every word that you're saying, you really care about giving them that experience because it's a quite a powerful experience. And so I'd call that the sweet spot. So Nancy and I would get off and say, we hit that right in the sweet spot. And that's there's something about that that thrills me. Is that almost more powerful than the room full of people laughing? It's about the same, but pr- almost, yes. Mm. So, so when... Uh, what turned out, Six Dancers in Six Weeks, turned out to be the most successful show that the ensemble, even to this date, has ever produced. The ensemble looked after me. I'm now patron of the, of the ensemble because I love that family down there. And But that gift that Sandra and Nancy gave to me, is uh, that's just a, a, a tool that I can never lose now. And it's so valuable. We would take our bows at the end of that show because the end of the show, it's not harrowing, it's beautifully, poignantly sad. Mm. Um, but it's handled so delicately by, by Sandra's direction when she dies in his arms. Well, you think she dies in his arms. She sort of collapses and we fade to black and you don't know. It's, but we would take our bows with the audience jumping to their feet with tears running down their faces and there's something really great about that, which mm. means they went with you on that journey. You know? mm. So tell me more about the ensemble. You mentioned being a patron there, which is uh, fairly significant. Is, does that just involve coming and talking to people like me? <laughs> is there more to it than that? <laughs> they did set up this interview. Yeah, they? they did. <laughs> um, no, it's much more than that. The ensemble, the philosophy of Sandra Bates and Mark Murray now, I think, too, is that the ensemble want to put on plays that people actually want to see. And that, I think, is a really great philosophy. They do reinvent their will with their productions and their staging and, and the productions they choose, but they're not wanting to shove Ibsen down your throat unless they think it's sort of popular. They're sort of put on popular Because it's stuff. good for you. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you can go to shows, other theatre companies, and you say, why? Why do I have to? to be going through this. Do you know what I mean? It's, but they just have this philosophy, and they put on some interesting mm. plays, but they're, um, they're stuff that sort of appeals to the masses, I think, but creatively, artistically brilliant. And I, I just feel like part of the family down there. So it, it, being patron involves me. I do free shows for them. I'm doing some shows with Nancy Hayes where I'm interviewing her like you are with me now. Mm. We sing a couple of songs, and it's really great. So Nancy doesn't know what... I'm going to ask Yeah, so it'll be literally, you could go every night and see something different. Absolutely. So I start the show with my my band. I have a bass player, double bass player, a backing singer and my keyboard player. So we start the show, we sing two songs. We sing Come On In My House. (laughs) We do because we're in the house. It feels like we're in my home. We've got a couch and it's so we sing, you know, Come On In My House. (laughs) Um, And then Nancy comes out and then I start the show by saying, look, you all know Nancy Hayes. You all know she's got the resume of 20 women and... She's a legend now. And I said, well, let's get to know the real Nancy Hayes when she hasn't got time to think about it. So I do a two-minute quick-fire um, rapid answer quiz mm-hmm. to start with. Like, do It's like Coke or Pepsi, um, bikinis one piece. Who would you rather? <laughs> Who would you rather be caught with in the morning, you know, John Howard or <laughs> Clive Palmer? And she has to say the first thing that comes in her head. And then if we think that something's worth exploring, I'll stop the clock and we'll talk about that more. <laughs> so it's a very random. Yeah. But he, and it's hilarious. And then we, we talk and Nancy and I know each other so well uh, that 
the chat is just like you and I now. It's you know, it, it's easy, mm. and we can say, well, let's sing this now. And 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 she's got her great stories, and she's got a great backstory now. She was a secretary for the Forestry Commission. That's how she started wow. life after school. That's a contrast. <laughs> and she used to have her dance shoes and her tights in the bottom drawer of her filing cabinet in case there was a um, J.C. Williamson's audition that got posted. The word got out, and she would grab her tights in the lunch hour, put them on, and go and audition for Betty Pounder. Come back and type away. <laughs> So I know all that stuff about Nancy. And um, and then the last 15 minutes, we open the floor up to questions. And at the ensemble in that intimate setting, it's very easy for people to talk to Nancy. And mm. that's always a random part of the show. That was, I mean, you can, we can never dictate what's going to be asked. And it's yeah. Fun. When you know someone that well and you're doing that sort of show with them, is there ever a temptation to just try and really trip them up? Yes, of course. <laughs> Or, or I've got my favourite stories of Nancy that she doesn't necessarily want to be made public. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Yes. No, so I try and drag them out. And if she doesn't tell them, I'll tell You'll them. You'll tell them for her. <laughs> Sounds so but she, Nancy gives as good as she gets. Yeah. You, know, she, she, you can't survive in this business at that level. And she's an incredible talent without uh, knowing your goods. Like she's a great, she's a great storyteller and she knows where to put the the gags in the stories and she's got some fabulous Frank Thring stories which I'm going to make her tell like only only she can tell (laughs) (laughs) well I think we have to have a bit more music to calm us all down now Um, and this is actually a good mix of musical theatre with uh, you know cabaret Mel Tomei yeah, so Mel Torme. So I was doing 42nd Street, the musical, and one of the actors in the show um, introduced me to Mel Torme, Louis Prima, um, that, that, that whole genre, Rick Damone, that whole, I just fell in love with these people and these arrangements of these songs. And then um, Mel Torme put an album out uh, called The Very Best of Mel Torme, which opens with Lulu's Back in Town, which it, your listeners need to go and explore that now when we finish. Um, and on that album, he sang this version of, of 42nd Street. So I thought it's a nice little meld of my two worlds. Hear the beat of dancing feet. It's a song I love, the melody of the 42nd Street. Little nifties from the 50s, innocent and sweet. Sexy ladies from the 80s who are indiscreet. Side by side, they're glorified. Where the underworld can meet the elite on 42nd Street. Sexy ladies from the 80s who are indiscreet. Side by side, they're glorified. Where the underworld can meet the elite. 42nd Street. 42nd Street. 
Naughty Body Gaudy Sporty Forty Forty Second Street What a great performance there of Forty Second Street from Mel Tomei. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Todd McKenney. Now, one thing, Todd, we haven't covered yet is your role as a judge on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> is it just playing another role? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't be him 24-7. I'd be lynched. I'd be exhausting. No, and I'm not a very judgmental person. My philosophy in life, funnily enough, and there'll be people falling off their chairs right now, but I'm not. I don't judge people. I let everybody run their race and I run mine, and I'm quite supportive of, of people. But when we auditioned for that judging panel, they put a lot of different combinations of people oh, it's combinations, at yeah. the desk, and... Uh, with all the combinations that sat next to me, I'd look down the line and I'd think, oh, okay, I know where I fit in because <laughs> I can go down that road. But my, it's always tongue-in-cheek for me. I'm always yeah. having a gag pretty much. Well, it's like the, the line about, you know, Hugh Jackman, oh, he could have thrown me a few film it's roles. That. It's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's that kind of thing. Mind you, I could not today get away with a lot of the stuff I said back in the early days in 2004 where times have changed. Oh, so the that last, Yeah, we've done 17 series of that show. So 170-something celebrities have gone through it. So people tell me, like, oh, I, can't believe, I haven't seen you since I did Dancing with the Stars. And I think, I can't even remember you were in Dancing with the Stars. Um, but, you know, so, so Helen Ritchie, the silver-headed lady who sits next to me, is very boring and she's fabulous. Gosh, her and I, she's, we're like brother and sister, her and I. Um, and then, you know, Paul Mercurio, Mark Wilson on the other end. I could see where everyone fitted in. And the, one of the joys of that judging panel is that we none of us tread on each other's toes and we let each other just have each other, our own space. Um, and it didn't take Einstein to look down the panel and know what my role was. I think my audition quote, they had a couple dancing in front of us and they said, no, okay, now they're really bad, Todd, what would you say? And I think I said something like, you two look like a couple of old jam cans in the wind clanging around the back of someone's backyard. <laughs> I mean, who even has jam cans anymore? But um, I think that kind of got me the role and I ran with it. <laughs> but you obviously enjoy it if you've been doing it for so long. I love it. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's the easiest gig I do every week because there's no prep. I just oh. sit there like you at the same time as everybody else and see what comes out. And now, that's fascinating because I'd have thought that you'd, you'd have your little book of insults or, or, sorry, critiques that you'd have ready to go <laughs> and uh, you just pull the right one out for the right moment. No, no, no. We do prep. I do, could, could, I do prep. So, yeah. so the only prep I do is if it's – in case I'm dry on the night. So if somebody comes out and dances down the middle of the road – I don't have much material. Ah. If they're really, really good, I have some. If they're really, really bad, I've got loads. So if we get a season which is the middle of the road dancers, uh, I always make sure I have notes on the style that they're dancing to next to me, notes on the history of the cha-cha, the rumba, whatever. So I have funny things about the dance. I remember somebody danced to Lovers in the Air and it was really bad. and I didn't have much to say to them. And I said, look, it's lovers in the air, not leprosy. You know, <laughs> so I have those little quotes in case they turn out. But I've got quotes in case they're good, quotes in case they're bad, and then the audience are no slouches either. So you, you have to judge what you see. You yeah. can't just do your shtick. So there's no point in me saying I've got a funny line, but I can't use it right now. Yeah, but how do you find that line between it being a, a dance lesson or, or, or a dance critique, uh, critique of the competitors, versus purely entertainment? 
for the audience at home? Well, I think we are putting on a television show, and so and me being a person who puts on one man shows, like I'm, I can easily see what. If I'm the last person to speak on the panel, it's been very dry. I can see the showbiz in me pops a little pearl mm. out there because of that's what we want. And yeah. those pearls, otherwise, it's a boring sequence. Yeah, yeah. They, they they tend to land. And so the, the showbiz person in me sees that. Um, but we always, all of us, particularly Helen, Richie, and I, we always have a good thing, or ninety nine percent of the time, we say a good thing, and then we give them a little bit of a tough love. So there's always good and bad. We never just go, nah, 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 bad, bad. But people just remember the bad, 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 bad. Yeah, well, they're the clips that bad. find well, their way on social media. Yeah, they are the ones. <laughs> but I was, I was reading actually in the preparation for this interview, in my preparation, I was reading somewhere that you were going to try and be a bit less acidic um, or is that just a, a media story to keep, oh, the, no, keep no, the world I, turning? No, I never, I never, I've never been led by the producers. I've never been, I've never made a choice of how I play it. Oh. I think just as I'm getting older, I'm probably mellowing a lot myself. Okay. And so I think we've got a lot of people in me in the last series said, oh, you, you're so much nicer this series. I was like, oh, maybe that's just where I'm at in my life, you know. like, <laughs> Or I'm, maybe the competitors are better. <laughs> maybe the competitors are better. Well, they were all ex-champions in the last one. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think I've changed. I mean, at the beginning, I think it was a lot more um, premeditated stuff in there than that ended up being in the last 10 years. So are there any jobs that you've regretted? Oh, my God, yeah, singing in the rain, cats. <laughs> <laughs> Dozens of them. Dozens. I thought cats was the one that got you your first Yeah, but I gig. still hated it. I didn't like cats at all. I hated being in it. I hated being... You try turning up to work in light grey lycra every day and see. See how you look. For some people, that's their dream. Yeah, but I'm a sweater, so after the first number, I may as well be wearing glad wrap. <laughs> but what about the others? Why did you not enjoy oh, cats? I didn't like the choreography. I didn't yeah. being on my knees. It hurt, and I don't know. But what I, about singing in the rain, for instance? That singing in the rain to me was just too hard. It was just too hard. it was just too hard. So what what we decided to do, what David Atkins, who directed, decided to do, which in, in his wisdom was recreate the dance numbers from the movie on stage. Mm -hmm. So my character, who was Don Lockwood, the Gene Kelly character, in the movie, which you don't even think about when you watch the movie, there's five dance routines, one after the other at the beginning of the show, and there's no time to get off stage and change. So I start the show looking like the Michelin Man, underdressed, three three oh. suits underdressed with a, with a trench coat over the top to hide everything, and I'd literally jump to the wings, strip a layer, go back on. So, so what my character would do, he'd do the opening number, and then he'd another character would come on, and he'd have a routine with him, like the Cosmo, that Moses supposes, the Moses, the Roses, the Moses supposes, the Moses. That, that's a massive big tap number, right? So the lactic acid is building up in your legs, but then he'd go off. And then Rachel Beck would come on as Kathy Selden, and I'd have a number with her. So they'd all go off. I don't know you know, play Scrabble. And I just kept going on to the next number and going to the next number and it got to the point actually where I, the overture would start and I would, uh, my heart would sink because I just knew at the end of the show, then I would finish act one on the rain deck doing the singing in the rain, the iconic routine which you just have to nail. You can't slip over. Gene Kelly never slipped over. It was incredibly, incredibly wet and slippery. Um, and you had to do that routine justice. It was a beautiful routine to dance. Mm. And that was hard. So therefore, again, it, paid, it just wrecked my legs. And then you'd finish off with a 15-minute Broadway ballet. You know that Broadway rhythm, it's got me, everybody dance. Sid Charisse comes out and did it. That's 15 minutes, and that's how I finished the show. So it was never designed from the movie to be a stage show using those routines, um, and it killed me. And I went to David Atkins during it, 
um, the Melbourne season. And I said, David, I just have to go down to six shows a week. I can't. And my moralistically, I was taught it's eight shows a week in musical theatre, mm. and that's it. So mentally, I struggled. Especially when you're doing it twice in the same day. Twice in the same day. And at the Regent Theatre in Melbourne, this rain deck, which was this whole set with the tanks and everything, which was parked behind the main stage. And at one point, the uh, flats would fly up and this rain deck would get pushed forward and out I'd come doing do-do-do-do-do. There it was. And all this rain kept getting circulated and it was hot and it was heated and all of that. There was a pigeon, a pigeon living in the rafters of the Regent Theatre, right, in Melbourne, right? That every night the rain deck would come down and this thing would fly down, land on the rain deck and start cleaning itself and having a bath. And I got upstage in with the hardest show I've ever done in my life. I was upstage night after night by this bloody pigeon. And it just, it just was nothing fun about it. Oh, you can think of the after dinner conversation now. Well, it's <laughs> given me a nice story for your show, exactly. hasn't it? <laughs> but the, the reason you don't like a show is because of that sort of thing, not because you think the show itself is bad. Oh, I've been in some lemons. It's hard to be, when you're in a one that's tanking, you, mm. it's hard work to get out there. You kind of want to say sorry before you go into your first song. I did one of those at the Opera House, but. The people putting it on are really lovely people, so I don't want to mention it, but yeah, yeah. it was bad. Um, nobody tries to put on a bad show, I don't think anyone, you know, everyone, and, and to be a producer, especially in this day and age, you'd have to have nerves of steel these days to mm. invest money in theatre with everything being so, you know, precarious. Mm. Uh, so I like to support people and putting on shows, but it's hit and miss. You don't know really all the time what's going to push people's mm. buttons, and you're in great shows which don't work, and then you're in you know, light-hearted, cheap things which just don't stop. How do you respond to reading reviews? Do you read reviews? Uh, well, Nancy and I in Six Dance Lessons made a pact at the beginning of that show that we would not read any reviews because for a number of reasons, from the first preview onwards for the next three years, um, we just knew the show worked. So we didn't need anybody's, you know, anybody's critique to say mm. differently. And there are some critics out there who like to pull people down, you know, it's particularly in Melbourne, I find. Mm. So we didn't, we just didn't want to read them. And even the good ones affect you. You know, somebody can pick out a scene that you do that you've never didn't realise it was great and all of a sudden someone said it's great and so the next day you try and do it great and it's no longer great. So we didn't and we honestly didn't read them and then we got to the last night and the, um, the publicist gave us uh, photocopies of all of the crits and there were some bad ones in there and so I'm glad we didn't read them and that kind of since since that and Nancy's saying that's her philosophy I've I've taken it on but if someone like John Frost who's my kind of most prolific producer of my work now um, innocently sends me a text and says good writer I'm the Australian toddy I run to the shop to buy the Australian <laughs> So I read the good ones when people tell me there's a good one. That's good. Yeah. Right. Well, I can't believe we've made it to this point in the show without having a track from Peter Allen. <laughs> so we have to have one now, and it's going to be Quiet, Please, There's a Lady on Stage. Now, yeah. what do you like about this? And um, you've got an interesting story, I think, about why about it's actually this called this. Yeah, I do. So Peter Allen said that all of his audiences wanted this story to be about Judy Garland because it's about a fading star and please put your hands together, help her along, quiet, please, as a lady on the stage. And, but it wasn't. It was actually about a lady called Julie Wilson who Peter worked with a lot. She was an older kind of cabaret star in New York 
and he went to the Rainbows and Stars room, cabaret room, very famous cabaret room in New York, to watch her late night show and there was a rowdy group of patrons at the table next to him and they wouldn't shut up and so he wrote on a napkin, quiet please, there's a lady on stage. And then after years of harassment from people going, oh, sing the song about Judy Garland and him going, it's not about Judy Garland, it's about Julie Wilson. Um, He ended up giving up and going, yeah, all right, it's about Judy Garland, go on. Quiet please, there's a woman up there And she's been honest through her songs Long before your consciousness was raised Now doesn't that deserve a little praise So put your hands together And help her along All that's left of the singers All that's left of the song Stand for the ovation Give her one last celebration Quiet please There's a person up there Who's singing of the sins That none of us could bear To hear for ourselves Give her your respect if nothing else Put your hands together and help her along All that's left of the singers, all that's left of the song Rise to the occasion Give her one last celebration Quiet please There's a lady on stage Conductor Turn the final page When it's over We can all go home She lives on On the stage alone So put your hands together Help her alone That's left of the singers, all that's left of the song. Stand for the ovation and give her one last celebration. The original Peter Allen with Quiet Please, There's a Lady on the Stage. Not about Judy Garland. Oh, my. Sorry to shatter, no, shatter your yes, dreams. Shattered my, <laughs> shattered my illusions there, but never mind. I'll just, uh, I'll just suck that one up. And that was the choice of Todd McKenney, my guest in conversation today. This may not have been a job that you regretted, but it's certainly a new skill that you had to learn when you were doing Barnum. I believe you had to learn how to tightrope walk. I did. What a useless skill I have up my sleeve now. And um, but I did it. I did it. But is it the kind of thing where you know there's the question? Oh, Todd, can you tightrope walk? And you go, well, yes, of course I can. <laughs> It was a bit like that. Well, I'd always wanted to play Barnum, that character. Uh, I loved that character. And it was my mum's favourite musical. And my mum's getting on and um, I did it for mum, actually. I I wanted her to – because she used to always say to me, I want you to play Barnum one day. She'd she'd seen Michael Crawford doing it in New York. Anyway, so I did it. But, yes, um, can you type – and I said, how how hard can it be? Oh, my God. (laughs) 
it's really hard. You've got literally a piece of wire the size of your index finger, the width of your index finger. That's the wire. It's got to get set up on stage. You've finished Act 1, climbing up this pole and singing a song in this middle of this massive, big, belting number. And in the story, it's part of the storytelling. So he has an affair with this character, um, Julie... Uh, uh, Julie uh, I, I really was in the show, by the way. <laughs> um, Jenny Lynn. So he leaves his wife, Charity Barnum, to have this affair. And so you've got Charity Barnum on one side of the stage, who he's leaving, and you've got Jenny Lynn on the other side of the stage. And so it's a metaphor that he's in the middle of this tightrope act, which will he stay with the wife? Will he go towards Jenny Lynn? And so, so there's someone... Some smart aleck went, let's get him to walk the wire while he sings it. <laughs> Some dumb actor went, yeah, that'll be good, I'll do it. Now we're all stuck with it for the rest of our days. So I went to NICA. So I rehearsed at NICA, which is the National Institute of Circus Arts in Melbourne, and I had uh, this Russian tightrope lady who taught me, and I was there every morning for hours. Then I'd do the rehearsals for the show and every afternoon for hours. And then I had a circus master with me during the show who... And we'd, I would get to the theatre two hours before everybody else so I could do an hour on the wire. Because uh, you can't fake it. No. It's not one of those things you can <laughs> fake. You have to walk that wire. And it's hard work. So you got the big rod thing? No. I had a, oh. I had a, um, a fan... I tried it without the fan, because it was fans shaped like a kind of tennis racket, if you like. It's got a um, parachute fabric. It's bamboo right. tennis. If you think of taking the strings out of the tennis yeah. racket and putting parachute fabric in there, it sort of billows a little bit. Uh, I had that in my upstage arm, and you just when you take that first step out onto the wire, your heart is pounding, your adrenaline is going through the roof, and you've got your big note to sing, so you land on the other and end. And you're singing you're like, at the same time. No, you stop where you get across, but as soon as you land, you're like, da-da! And then <laughs> off you go into your song again. But the, I fell off about three or four times, and the cast, I could just feel the cast, everybody is willing me. And then every now and again, someone in the audience would yell out, Go, Tony! Go, Tony, which completely like, is wrong on so many levels. Like, A, it means, like, great, you're not buying the character. <laughs> B, now nobody's buying the character because they've just sort of been sucked into Toddland. And you've got people going, you can do it. One night I fell off three times in the one show. And by the end, actually, funnily enough, by the end, I was, by hook or by crook, I was getting across. Like, I was going to put in all that work and not do it. And by the end, audience members were more or less standing on their chairs going, God, oh, you can do it, you can do it. And I remember standing there before I took off for the last time and I just looked out the crowd and I went, where's Hugh Jackman when you need him? Because <laughs> he'd done the greatest yes, showman. Of he didn't have to walk the wire. He just had his caravan and his... See, this is where I get into trouble. And if trouble. he did, it'd be green screen. <laughs> it'd be green screen. And so, and I remember saying, where's Hugh Jackman when you need him? And um, it was a huge laugh and that stayed in for the rest of the run. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Todd McKinney, I could talk for the rest of the afternoon to you. We've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining me My today. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Actor, singer, dancer, entertainer, judge, Todd McKinney. Look out for his show, Todd McKinney Sings Peter Allen and lots more. And later in the year, he'll be appearing in Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Check out his website, toddmckinney.com.au. Well, that's in conversation for today. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app so that each episode downloads straight to your device. And you can also find us at 2mbsfinemusicsydney.com slash inconversation. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Oh, time is a tale.
Kangaroo, ah, ah.